As we get started, I have a few things that I want to share with you as we begin the new year. Uh, first of all, I'm excited about a, a four-part series that we will begin next week looking at the, our devotion to the gospel in a world that's filled with distractions. And I'm excited about a few things in this series. One is the fact that you're going to get to hear from myself along with the other pastoral staff, so Wills and Brian and Jeff. And I think it's really important for you as a church family to hear from all of the men who are serving in a pastoral role, whether it's over our youth, over our music. They're all involved in discipleship. They're all invested deeply in the life of this church. And it's really necessary for you to hear from their heart as well as mine. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about, there's a new song that Brian's going to introduce, and uh, I actually ran across this one before he shared it with me, and I thought, oh, this is such a good song. And then he said this was kind of going to be the, the, the cornerstone song as we enter into this series, which it's going to be really good. So uh, you'll have to see what that's all about when we get there. Um, but anyway, it's a, a good opportunity for, for us to kind of renew our focus, not just individually, but also I want this series to help us kind of renew our focus corporately as a church family. Uh, there's a passage, I've, re I've repeated it several times, so it'll be familiar to you. But to me, this is the heart of what we're trying to communicate in the series coming up. It's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And it says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we hope that what we will talk about in the next few weeks will help us live that out more faithfully, both individually, but also corporately in who we are as a church family. The other thing I wanted to mention to you is in a couple of weeks, I will do my annual study leave. And for those of you who don't know, I take a, a week of silence and solitude where I essentially prepare the sermon series that we will look at over the next year. And it's been a, a really, it's a gift that R Roger gave me when, uh, when I stepped into this role, and it has been one of the richest blessings for me and hopefully for us as a church, because inevitably there are things that I will prepare for in January, having no idea what's going to happen six front months from now, but will, by coincidence, right, what we look at in Scripture just ties perfectly with what we are going through in that moment in time. So it's a really significant time. But there's something especially important that I want you to be prayerful about because one of the other things that I'll be doing is planning through my sabbatical this summer. Uh, again, if you don't know, the pastoral staff takes a sabbatical every seven years. So I'm coming up on 14 years. And for whatever reason, this sabbatical seems really important to me. And maybe it's because the longer you do it, the more important they become. <laughs> but I did the math, and I figured, you know, I'm 14 years into this. 14 years from now, I'll be 70. And so I'm thinking, I'm on the back half of whatever time the Lord has left for me in ministry, right? And, and the reason that's important for me is because I really do want to finish well. I don't want to coast. <laughs> I want to hit the tape running. I sincerely want my desire for my devotion to you and my love for Christ to just grow richer and richer with time. I want to be able to transition out of this role when the Lord desires in the very same way I transitioned in because it was a huge blessing to this body. So would you just join with me in praying that 
over the next years, however the Lord, uh, long the Lord intends, that he will just allow me to faithfully serve, raising up the next generation of men who will serve in the life of this church, discipling this church family uh, for the praise and glory of his name. So if you would, I'm going to just pause here. If you feel so led, pray for me. And I'm going to take some time after that to then pray for us as a church family. Father, I'm so deeply grateful for this church family. The words cannot express the multitude of ways you have been a blessing to me and my family through them. There is no greater honor that I've ever had in my life other than serving as the pastor of this church. Thank you for the gift that they are to me and to my family. And Lord, I shared with them my heart's desire for the coming years, but really it's our heart's desire. We all want to grow more deeply in our devotion towards you and our love for one another. This is a shared prayer request. And so we come to you corporately as people who belong to you. And we ask that you stir within us by the work of your spirit a holy desire to grow deeper in our passionate pursuit of knowing you and more committed in our love for one another. Uh, Through the worship that we spend time doing, through our prayer with one another, through our time in your word, would each of these things enrich our hearts so that we may grow more deeply in love with you and with those around us. Father, as we enter into your word now in this moment, would you begin that process this morning? Would you just take the truth of your word Allow it to penetrate deeply into our hearts, into the innermost part of our being, to reshape how we see life, and because of that, how we live life among each other, but also in the world around us that so desperately needs to hear the good news of your saving truth as our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, we pray this in your name, amen. All right, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at a familiar passage, but hopefully with a a fresh set of eyes this morning. It's commonly known as the Beatitudes. Um, It's part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this is how Jesus began that famous sermon, which tells us what he says here sets the foundation for everything else that he will say in this uh, probably the most important sermon he ever gave. Because if you remember, we talked about this around Christmas. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. And now here in the Beatitudes, he's going to begin to unfold what life in this kingdom that he's announced actually looks like. And although these words are familiar to us, I think we need to appreciate the fact that that they would have been a little bit unsettling to the audience he was speaking to. Because Jesus, by and large, took the religious traditions of the day that they had become accustomed to, and he turned them upside down. He flipped them. He challenged the prevailing thought and introduced a new kingdom paradigm. I'm calling it the upside-down 
kingdom because it was very different than what they expected and probably, uh, if we're honest, we would say the same for ourselves as well. Jesus revealed this new paradigm with such clarity and conviction, so much so that at the end of the sermon, Matthew records the response of the people who were listening that day, and this is what he says. He says, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, what does that mean? How do the scribes teach? Well, the scribes, as well as the other religious leaders, always supported their argument, their, their teaching by the opinion of other people. They would add support to what they were saying because of notable rabbis or from the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, kind of like the commentary series to the Torah, and they would quote from that. And that's how they would teach, was their, their authority came from the opinions of other people. But interestingly, Jesus didn't do any of that. He never quoted anyone other than the Scripture itself. In fact, at one point, you'll remember this, he says, you've heard it said, religious tradition, but I say to you, putting his own authority over the authority of anyone else who's ever spoken. So, do you understand why this might have been a little bit unsettling to them? One of the other things before we jump in, I want you to understand that the Beatitudes are not just this some disconnected list of topics, okay? This is not multiple choice where you can kind of pick and choose which one applies to you. Instead, importantly, this is connected with each other, the chain, that are only strengthened as they are interconnected with each other. They are not separate from one another. So we're going to see how that's true as we look at this together. So read with me beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to pause and take a look at each of the statements Jesus makes. But as you all know, he begins each of them with the same word, doesn't he? He uses the word blessed or blessed. It's a word that means happy or uh, favorable. It's a word that from a biblical perspective really goes beyond just human emotions. Because our emotions are highly impacted by our circumstances, aren't they? But when you talk about being blessed and use that term from a biblical perspective, it goes way beyond human emotion into the depths of our inner being. It describes a deep place of contentment, of spiritual satisfaction. Despite, okay, don't miss this, despite what is happening around us. It's, it's that calm within the midst of the storm. That's this place of being blessed in our innermost being. It's not an idea of feeling right. It's the idea of being right with God in the deepest part of your soul. And, and these are all connected together. Let me show you how. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we understand, and you, you know this, he's not talking about material poverty here, is he? He's talking about spiritual truths. So the poor in spirit recognize their spiritual depravity. They understand that they are bankrupt before God, that there is nothing that they bring to him on their own merit and nothing that they could do to earn his reward. 
In other words, those who are poor in spirit recognize they are deeply dependent upon God for something they cannot do for themselves. Because pride has no place in God's kingdom. It's like the parable Jesus tells of the two men. You're familiar with this parable. One of them was a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other one was a tax collector. And they were praying in the temple. And the scripture records and says that the Pharisee prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Not like swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, and definitely not like that tax collector. He goes on and says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. And I want you to notice here what he's doing is he's justifying his merit earned before God. And in doing so, he's not in debt to God. God is in debt to him. Do you see that? The tax collector, on the other hand, was some distance away, unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. Scripture tells us that he beat his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen to me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to look to God in total dependence upon him. Jesus concludes that making this point when he says in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's how you get in. It begins with being poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, remember, I said that these beatitudes are interconnected, so Jesus hadn't shifted subjects on us here. He's still in that same line of thought. And so we need to understand that in its context, the idea of mourning here is not sadness because of things that we experience in life in this world, whether that's disease or difficulty, struggle, um, unreconciled relationships. Now, all those create mourning in our lives. We know that to be true. When we lose someone we love, there is mourning. And God cares about that. Let me, let me tell you that. The, the scripture tells us that he's the God of all comfort. So that matters to him, but that's not what he's referring to in this context. This is the mourning of those who are spiritually poor. It's a sorrow for sin that the Bible identifies as godly grief. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, uses those words, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, worldly grief is caused by the loss of something that We want for ourselves. It's a self-centered sorrow because of something we think we deserve or have somehow earned. But godly grief is different. It tells us it's a a sorrow that leads to repentance. So this is a, a sorrow for sin with a desire for something different. It's the posture of humility. Again, looking to God for something that you cannot accomplish on your own. 
That's why he goes on in verse 5 and says, Blessed are the meek, or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. So I want you to see the connections here of how these are fitting together. The poor in spirit see their deep need for God. Their sorrow for sin leads them to repentance. And they come before God in humility, relying on his grace. Do you see how that's how you get into the kingdom of God? You recognize your need. You understand your sin. You are humble before a holy God. And this humility or this meekness is not weakness. It's not a cowering before God out of fear. It's a bowing before God out of reverence. It's the recognition of sin along with the confident assurance of his goodness as as he is the one with whom you find forgiveness and hope. You're going to the one who you know can set you free. That's the point. So as you can see, even as we're walking through this, again, familiar to us, but would have been profound to the people that Jesus is speaking to. Because he's basically telling them, if you want to get into the kingdom, these are the ways that you must go. Which look very different than what they had been taught by the religious leaders. He continues in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, if we continue this train of thought, those who have been made right with God desire to do what is right before God. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you to think of uh, what it would be like to be invited to the kitchen of the world's greatest chef. Okay, And he is preparing his signature dish. So you know this is going to be good. And before it's served, he invites you over, takes a little spoonful and says, here, I want you to taste it. And you taste it, it hits your taste buds, and everything within you says, I have got to have more of that, right? Well, the same thing is true. For those who have tasted the goodness and mercy of God, everything within them says, I have got to have more of that. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen to how David describes it in Psalm 63, 1. It says, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, this shouldn't be an emotion that we somehow have to to, to conjure up. Instead, this happens naturally as we encounter the living God. See, someone who is poor in spirit has been made rich in God's grace. Someone who grieves their sin is comforted by God's forgiveness. Someone who has tasted the goodness of God has a hunger and a thirst for more. And what we receive from God, we earnestly want to share with others. That's the point of the next one. Look at 5-7. Blessed are the merciful, for they... Have received, they shall receive mercy. And I think there's a shift right here in the Beatitudes because if you'll look, the first four talked about what was happening inside of us 
Now we begin to understand how what happens inside of us starts to affect those who are around us. For example, forgiven people are forgiving people, right? We love as we have been loved. We show mercy in the same magnitude in which we know we have received mercy. And this mercy is not just an emotion, it's an action. It's not just simply feeling bad for someone. It's actually having the willingness to enter in and do something about it. And here's the key. We don't make that decision to get involved based on whether they've earned it or not. See, mercy, by definition, is giving something to someone that's more than what they deserve. And we know we do that with others because of how abundantly God is giving us well beyond what we deserve. Do you agree? So the scripture's calling us to, to in turn, share that same mercy with others. It reminds me of the parable you're familiar with, I'm sure, of the man who owed a, a king a, an insurmountable debt. It was extraordinary. There was no possible way he could repay it in his lifetime if he worked every single day. And so he went to the king and he begged for mercy. He fell on his knees. He wept before him. And in gracious kindness and mercy, the king forgave his debt. All of it. No questions asked. Well, that same man then turns around and goes to a fellow slave who owed him mere pocket change. Okay? And, and demanded that he repay him. And when that fellow slave couldn't repay him the scripture said Jesus concludes the parable by saying this in Matthew 18 32 then summoning him his Lord said to him you wicked slave I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, Jesus says, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are simply people of integrity. They are morally upright. They have an uncompromising devotion to God. Because having been made right with God, they're hungering and thirsting to be consistently satisfied by God's love for them. You see, they see the evidence of God's love all around them. Now, this is true for all of us when we have an intimate knowledge of something that we like, okay? For example, my son Grant loves cars and trucks, right? And he knows them like the back of his hand. We could be driving through town and he'll say, hey, Dad, look, there's a 82 Cummings diesel or 92 Cummings diesel. That thing has 12 valves and it's an inline six cylinder. And I'm like, I have no idea what any of that means. And I didn't even see the truck, Right? But he sees that kind of stuff everywhere. Well, the same is true for us. When we are intimately knowledgeable of God's heart, we see his hand at work all around us. It's everywhere. 
places other people never even notice. Because the pure in heart see life through spiritual eyes. Because knowing the heart of God is what allows you to see the hand of God at work around you. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Once again, we make peace with others because we have received peace from God. More often than not, I believe anger and strife flow out of an unsettled soul. In other words, when things aren't right within us, we struggle with relationships around us. But members of God's people are those who practice peace. Instead of being critical, peacemakers are kind. They look for what's right instead of pointing out everything that's wrong. Peacemakers protect unity by highlighting what we have in common. They are ministers of reconciliation. is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, people who have peace with God always make peace with others. They're peacemakers. This should be a family trait of all of God's people. That's why it says, for they shall be called sons of God. They should look at you and say, that reminds me of someone. It should remind them of your heavenly Father who has made peace with you. And then verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, we need to understand that the, the prevailing thought of the Jewish audience that Jesus was primarily speaking to here saw God's kingdom as one of peace and prosperity primarily through the liberation from political oppression. But because many that he was speaking to have had experiences with persecution. They were under Roman rule. So what Jesus says here is a little confusing to them. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who are insulted, who are the recipients of of evil intention, isn't God's kingdom supposed to take all that away? Well, it is, yes, which is why Jesus says that there's a great heavenly reward, reward. But until that heavenly reward, we still live in an earthly kingdom. And so until that day, we can still have deep contentment even when we suffer wrong. In fact, evil opposition is an affirmation of righteousness. Evil opposition is an affirmation of righteousness. Think about it. The enemy doesn't care about you if you're not making an impact on his kingdom. Why would he bother you? Minister of reconciliation, it does matter to him. The biggest threat to him is Jesus, which means those who belong to Jesus become his greatest threat. But Jesus offers comfort. He says, 
that he's the ruler of God's kingdom. That his people are protected under the wings of his sovereign control. That he has authority to bless and reward on behalf of God's kingdom. Because those who belong to Jesus belong to God. Because Jesus is God. See, that's why this sermon is so profound. They thought he was talking about this outside kingdom being brought forth by this outside person. But as he begins this sermon, he's saying, the kingdom is here, and I am the king. And here's how you enter in to the kingdom. And so I think we need to ask ourselves a really important question at this point, and that is, which kingdom do I belong to? The kingdom of God or this earthly kingdom in which we live? And I ask that question knowing that I'm speaking to an audience of people who belong primarily as a child of God. But I think even as Christians, we can become what I'll call kingdom confused. (laughs) Because here's the reality. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom when we put our faith in Christ. That is true. But yet we still live as aliens in a world that is not our home. And so it's easy for us to get kingdom perspectives confused. But I think the Beatitudes are really helpful to kind of realign our perspective. And so here's an exercise that I want you to do during this next week, okay? Not not the week after that. (laughs) Not next month, okay? I'm urging you, please do this over the next week. And this is what it looks like. I want you to go back to what we talked about. So if you didn't listen to anything I had to say... It's online, okay? Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through each of the Beatitudes as we've done this morning and kind of recognize the key point of each one that we've made. So, for example, we talked about being poor in spirit. It's someone who understands their deep need for God, right? Then what I want you to do is I want you to think about what's the opposite of that? So someone doesn't have a deep need for God, I would say the opposite is they're self-sufficient. They don't need God. So then you ask yourself the question, am I God dependent or am I self-sufficient? That will tell you what kingdom perspective you have adopted. Make sense? And then just work your way through the remainder of the Beatitudes so that you can go to the next one and talk about how godly grief leads to repentance or am I quick to deny my sin? Am I gentle and humble, or am I critical and proud? You get the idea, right? Each one, establish what God's kingdom perspective is, determine what the opposite is, and then ask yourself, which one have I adopted? And here's the reality. Don't be discouraged by this. Because if you're doing it right and you're being honest in your reflection, you're going to find some places that are not in alignment, right? Every one of us will. I'm going to. And so what we need to recognize is that we're not doing this exercise in order to feel guilty. We're doing it to recognize the ways that God is inviting us into something better. We're doing it to realign to what he has called and made possible for us. So that, as we've been learning, we can find contentment in Christ as you're comforted by his forgiveness, as you're humbled by his grace, so that you can be satisfied by his love, motivated by his mercy. Let it lead you into a 
passionate pursuit of knowing Christ over this next year, seeing the evidence of his hand at work all around you because your intimate knowledge of his heart gives you eyes to see his hand at work in and through your lives. Strive for peace as ministers of reconciliation, willing to endure persecution in order to be more faithful to Christ. Knowing that the suffering that we experience in this world will be exchanged for an eternal weight of glory. Remember the song we used to sing uh, some time ago, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere? (laughs) That's what we hold on to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the realigning truth of your word. Thank you for your grace that we can go through this exercise and recognize the places that maybe we've adopted the wrong kingdom perspective. And then we can look at you and you would look at us with grace in your eyes and say, it's okay, come on back and let me invite you into something better. Lord, help us to be kingdom people who live according to your kingdom promises, that there would be a deep sense of contentment way down into our soul, the inner man, the inner woman of who you've created us to be. Help us to live out all that you've made possible as we belong to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this past Thursday, our men's Bible study had a conversation about some passages that we were working through that were pretty challenging. One of the things that we concluded is that we have to be careful to preserve the mystery of things in Scripture that we don't fully understand because if you have an answer for everything, you probably got a lot of it wrong. But here's something that there's not a lot of mystery in. There's mystery in who God is and all of His fullness and what our heavenly reward looks like and all those details that I can't get my head around. But when it comes to what He has made possible for you through your faith in Jesus Christ, there's not a lot of mystery because He has done an extra effort to make that known to you. That's the Beatitudes. It's saying, here, let me open up the treasure box and show you all the blessings that have been made possible for those who are in the kingdom of God. And so when you go through that exercise this week, you're looking through a treasure box that God has handed to you. This belongs to you. These are blessings that are promised to you. And so may we live them out more faithfully this year. Amen. Father, thank you so much for the chance to be in your word as we begin the new year. May it be a fresh start to new beginnings how we walk with you, how we are loved by you, how we love those around us and are loved by them. As Michael and Mary said, may we be authentic in our relationships with one another. May we walk faithfully in our relationship with you. Father, we pray for everybody as they go this week and look at the Beatitudes that they will unpack the riches and mercy and grace that have been given to them and live out of what you've made possible for them. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day. Happy New Year.